1: Every neighborhood in Korea, small, large, big cities, countryside, they have panchan stores nearby. And I just thought, you know, this city, this place that I live in has so many Korean restaurants, Panchan
2: stores should be next. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler.
3: And I'm your other host, Karen
2: Han. Karen, who was that we heard at the top of this episode?
3: That was Chef Huni Kim, the first Michelin-starred chef in Korean cuisine, the force behind the New York restaurant Danji, author of the cookbook My Korea, and as of this taping, the proprietor of the little banchan shop in Long Island City.
2: Wow. So what made you want to talk to Chef Huni this week?
3: I'm just a huge fan of his cooking. I went to both Tanji and his recently closed restaurant Hanjan several times when I was living in New York. Like I took my mom there, I took my partner there, and I own and cook from his cookbook as well. I'm I love I love his food.
2: You're just a super fan. Yeah. That's great. And I understand our PLUS members get a little something extra on their plates this week.
3: Yeah. So for Slate PLUS, I talked to Chef Huni about his experience at culinary school and in other restaurants' kitchens and learning about the value of good ingredients and cooking for family versus for profit from Korean mothers, as well as burnout in the food and culinary industry.
2: Wow. That is a lot of fascinating stuff to cover, and I wouldn't want to miss it. And luckily, if you're a member of Slate Plus, you do not have to. Go to slate.com slash plus today to sign up for Slate Plus, and you can get all sorts of goodies, like bonus segments on this show. You get full access behind the paywall. You get bonus full episodes of Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. It's a great deal, so sign up mm-hmm. today at slate.com slash plus. All right. Now let's listen in on Karen's conversation with chef Huni Kim.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear. Check breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check planning for what's next and how to save for it. That's where bank of America can help for your financial to do's bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
2: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message
0: and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
3: Chef Hooney, thank you so much for coming on to Working.
1: Hi, Karen. Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
3: You have two restaurants in New York, uh, Tanji and Hanjan, which I understand sadly is closing soon. Um, But they've been a real source of good food for me for when I lived in New York. And I wanted to start by talking about a service that you started um, out of Hanjan during the pandemic, which was doing meal kits. Um, When I was still living in New York, I actually took advantage of those meal kits because they were so delicious. And I thought it'd be fun to talk to you about sort of that creative process? Because it feels like a sort of separate entity from coming up with a menu for a restaurant, per se, is like figuring out this style of food or the style of catering that's supposed to be made at home to a certain extent. And I wanted to start with, I guess, asking what made you think about doing these meal kits?
1: Just a a matter of survival. Mm -hmm. If customers, diners, couldn't come to us the only way we can survive is to get the food to them. And that sort of, it was always in the back of my mind that Korean food is so useful and and good to be reheated at home because Mm -hmm. a lot of the stews, it just tastes better the next day or two or three days later because all the the flavors harmonize and they melt together. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our grilled meats, it's better to sort of grill it yourself at home or or just pan fry it yourself at home um Mm -hmm. and uh, the banchans especially the banchans it's what you keep in your fridge for three four days and eat at your will so we Mm -hmm. knew that korean food was conducive and you would get restaurant quality food you could experience that at home it was just a matter of us getting it to them
3: And practically speaking, what is it like figuring out a menu that'll have to keep for at least a few days in terms of ingredients and stuff and also kind of be easy for people to prep at home and still be kind of as delicious as you want it to be when you serve it to somebody?
1: So the stews, you know, and the soups that we and the braised meats like kalbi where we usually let it sit for a day before we even serve it, that was fine that was Mm -hmm. we didn't have an issue the the grilled meats that we actually cook right before that was fine too because we just had to make sure that the marinade didn't leak Mm -hmm. there were um a lot of practices on how to get like the the stir fries and Mm -hmm. and the other dishes uh especially fish dishes Mm because difficult to make fish taste good after the second heating (laughs) yeah. <laughs> so we were very limited on what kind of fish dishes we can uh, put on our meal kit menu. But yeah, number one priority was still what's what we as Hanjan um mm-hmm. our restaurant our philosophies were uh what we wanted to serve and we thought the the customers would enjoy and miss. And number two was to make sure that when they were reheating it at home or cooking at home, that it was going to be the restaurant quality. Like it was not going to be anything less than what they would enjoy uh, at my restaurants. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, One of the things that I found really impressive about the meal kits was that you offered kind of such a huge like range of dishes from noodles, dumplings, as you're talking about, uh, braised meat and fish. There's just so much on offer. Uh, And with that in mind, I'm curious if there was a dish that you wanted to serve but couldn't quite figure out how to serve in that format.
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, Grilled mackerel.
3: Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) It just dried up after 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And we were thinking of sending it raw, packaging mm-hmm. it raw, and that stink wouldn't last uh, <laughs> the actual delivery uh, process. Uh, yeah. But, you know, going back to what you said about the variety, um, in the first couple of weeks, we didn't have that variety.
0: Mm-hmm. It was
1: sort of very similar from week one to week two to week three. But starting, I think, in April, we realized these families were ordering every single week. So for me and my wife, we were eating this every single week, too. Mm -hmm. We got bored of what we were serving. (laughs) So then that's why we added uh, other dishes, more dishes. And basically, I think we had about a six-week sort of system where we had almost 200 dishes that we would Mm -hmm. cycle in and out. Because each meal kit had about nine or ten different dishes uh, just because it was for the entire family for the entire week. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that's what we had to do to survive in in that atmosphere and that situation. Yeah, and we did. <laughs>
3: yeah, and I wanted to ask about the process of putting together the meal kits as well. Not on sort of on your end, but especially on the customer side of things, because I remember there. One of the nice things about the instructions that you would include with the meal kits is you'd give kind of a couple of different options for making a given dish if there were a couple of options. So figuring out like to what kind of skill level you wanted to cater to and then figuring out the best ways for making these at home.
1: Ultimately, it was you needed to have the texture and the flavor to be very similar to what you would experience if you had ordered it at my restaurant Mm -hmm. but also as easy as possible a lot of the dishes didn't make it on the menu because it wasn't I wasn't able to make it easy uh -hmm. while some of the dishes there was no sort of middle way uh middle ground but uh, we made made sure that the The instructions were very specific (laughs) Uh, (laughs) timed to the size of the pan Mm -hmm. that you used uh, and and we had we had a lot of questions every single week (laughs) Uh, and we had complaints too about you know how because one of the ways of cooking dumplings was uh, oil and water and the lid together Mm -hmm. Uh, because by the time the the water reduced and disappeared the oil would be there make sure to to brown the dumplings on one Mm -hmm. side. But then one of the complaints... uh, She was a lawyer too. (laughs) And and she was very nice about it. She was like, you know what? I'm a lawyer and I tried to make this and I got oil splat all over me. (laughs) You might want to change the recipe because you might get sued. And I was like... (laughs) We ended up not changing it. um, But I was scared. Uh, And she was concerned for us too. Mm -hmm. Um, But even that dumpling we tried it many different ways and the best way it was to and the easiest way instead of sort of just using oil and having people flip to the three sides every three four minutes mm-hmm. the easiest way was what we determined to be a little bit dangerous but at least you know people now learn how to cook dumplings at home whether it's mine or somebody else's
3: mm-hmm. yeah and this sort of leads me to your current project, The Little Panchan Shop, which is opening this summer. Um, you mentioned panchan a little bit earlier as something that was provided as part of the meal kits. And just for our listeners who might not be familiar with the concept of panchan, would you mind explaining it for us?
1: Sure. There's actually two definitions of banchan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the general definition for panchan in Korean is everything except rice (laughs) so your component is rice you everybody gets their own bowl of rice and usually you share all the banchan family style uh place it in the middle of the table sometimes you get your own soup but you know that's family preference uh but in sort of a restaurant uh setting banchan is the usually sometimes free little side dishes that you get with your entree order So Mm -hmm. you don't really order it. Um, You just get what that restaurant wants to serve. And in the family setting, it's pretty much the same too. Uh, It's banchan, little cold side dishes that you have in your fridge. Not always, but Mm -hmm. in a Korean family, yes, always. Uh, And and it's very accessible so that all you need is a, a hot bowl of rice. And you just take out some of the boxes that you have in your fridge. And you have three or four or five different... Flavor profiles with that hot bowl of rice that you can enjoy in less than five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, preparing lunch, dinner, so you know banchan is I would say how a mother, a matriarch, usually in Korea, how the the, the, the home cook is defined because the banchans there. There's a lot of varieties, but everybody cooks like the staples, like the spinach, muchim and these the kimchi that you make at home. So. Because everybody's sort of making the same menu items, um, you define yourself by how well you make it or how, what your personal twist. So I think a lot of mothers at home uh, are very proud of their banchan. Mm-hmm. And that's why all of us, like Korean, you know, Korean-American children, we are just spoiled so much <laughs> by good banchan. And that's why it's so hard and difficult to execute it at the restaurant.
3: So I wanted to ask, was making Panchan for the meal kit something that sort of birthed the idea of trying to open a shop on its own? Or was it something that, or or was the little Panchan shop something that you kind of had in mind already?
1: To be honest, I was thinking about a banchan shop about three years ago.
3: Wow. Before
1: the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's also because I was spending a lot of time in Korea, uh, you know, two months, sometimes six months at a time when projects. And I was staying at a hotel and... Every neighborhood has two, three, five panchan stores. And, mm-hmm. you know, on my way home, uh, when I wanted like a home cooked meal instead of a restaurant meal, I would buy a microwavable uh, rice mm-hmm. and pick up two or three banchans. Mm-hmm. didn't matter what hotel I was staying at. There was one close by. And, you know, every neighborhood in Korea, small, large, big cities, countryside, they have panchan stores near Buy, with easy access, and I just thought, you know, this city, this this place that I live in has so many Korean restaurants. You can almost find, you know, a Korean restaurant in every sort of town in in New York these days. Uh, banchan store should be next.
3: Mm-hmm. And I I think I understand that they're they're going through something of a boom in Korea right now as well.
1: Definitely, uh, there's there's more banchan stores. Because of the pandemic, Mm. uh, people got used to uh, eating at home, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I think that was one of the the big reasons why there was a boom in the banchan shop. And also, I think um, traditionally banchan shops were sort of they were home cooks making banchan Mm -hmm. with your home recipes. I think these days you have in Korea a lot of chefs who are partaking in this practice and making banchan with um, recipes that, whether it be good or bad, a little bit more uh, detailed and complicated uh, Mm -hmm. for complex flavors. Um, Mm -hmm. The reason why I thought that it'd be a good idea now, well, two reasons. One, I was able to keep my staff at Hanjan. Mm. And with that staff, because hiring staff is like almost next to impossible these days, uh, with that staff, I was able to... uh, I would be confident about being able to execute this panchan project because it is very difficult. A lot more difficult than a restaurant in many ways because we have 120 items on the menu. Oh, wow. We're opening with 60 different Mm. items, but they all have sort of very, uh, they have shelf lives that are all different. Yeah. (laughs) Like the spinach and the bean sprouts will only go for two days on the shelf. Whereas uh, the marinated meats could go for three, uh, the the dehydrated squid could go for three weeks. You know, and to be able to sort of time yourself to be able to make sure that these don't run out and we always have it, uh, that's been one of the most difficult tasks.
3: I'm curious if you've had to tweak, I guess, the, the recipes at all in order to try to make sure that they will last a little bit longer than they might, or if it really has just been, this is the best recipe for making taste the best, and sort of the shelf life kind of being secondary in that respect, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, in the beginning, we, we uh, learned a lot about uh, what we can and cannot do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, spinach in bibimbap, kimbap, And just spinach as a panchan is is very popular. Mm -hmm. But we realized that our bibimbap set with the assorted vegetables in it packed together, the spinach was always the first thing to go.
0: So in three
1: days in the fridge, uh, the spinach would ruin it for all the other vegetables. (laughs) So, um, you know, we decided to take the spinach out and replace it with watercress, which actually lasted a couple of days longer. Stuff like that. Uh, Certain, you know, fish dishes. It tastes great, but... Smell-wise, uh, you know, you don't want to include it with, like, the rest of the meal kit or actually near any other food packages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I didn't know any of this. Mm-hmm. The the two years of meal kits really, really helped us. Um, number one, just experimenting recipes. Because, you know, with restaurants, you change menus. But... You know, not as much as we do with the meal kits, or not as much as we will have with the banchan shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but the meal kits helped us do that, um, making the same thing over and over again until it was perfect to us, anyway. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, I just feel like I was fortunate, lucky. Uh, this sort of natural progression to a, a better banchan shop was facilitated by this pandemic, but we were able to take advantage of it. Hmm.
2: We'll be back with more of Karen's conversation with Chef Huni Kim after this. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Hey, listeners, Isaac Butler here. Two really quick things. First of all, if you are enjoying what you're listening to here on Working, please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, so you'll never miss an episode. And also, just want to remind you, we love hearing from you all. So please write us an email at workingatslate.com or give us a call at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-W-O-R-K. All right. Now let's get back to Karen's conversation with Chef Huni Kim.
3: I'm shocked to hear that you have 120 items planned for the menu, let alone just 60 for the opening cuz that all, in, in itself seems like so so much work. How did you decide on like on what dishes you wanted to serve at the banchan shop?
1: 3 months ago we had 80 oh and my we gosh. thought oh that's more than enough. More <laughs> than enough uh and then every day one or two is just you know you go to a (laughs) restaurant you taste something and then suddenly you know i have a couple of stores that i get sort of organic products from in korea yeah and then when i go to those oh they you know new product hey Mm -hmm. we can make this this with this so (laughs) if we would open three months ago i think we would have just stuck with the 80 Mm -hmm. but um it's not all going to be at the store at the same time because Mm -hmm. a lot of it is seasonal yeah but our menu, our recipe book has 100 i think 17 or 118 recipes right now mm-hmm. uh, and within a span of four seasons one year all of it's going to make a a presence wow. so yeah we're and if you ever want to learn how to make pancha, our store is it
3: <laughs> are you planning on offering classes or do you mean just so in no, a more generally no we
1: need to hire two more cooks oh gotcha oh gotcha (laughs) (laughs) so come cook (laughs) it. yes yes (laughs) we will pay you well you don't have to pay us anything to learn (laughs)
3: Um, and I wanted to touch on another thing that you mentioned as well which is figuring out kind of how to juggle all these things like how much of any dish to make and when to kind of put it out because of the shelf life issue Um, how has it been figuring that out like prior to the shop opening and before having I guess more direct practical experience with that
1: Well, because of the banchan shop, we actually know how long it can stay in a regular fridge Mm -hmm. uh, with a 40 degree um, maximum temperature. Mm -hmm. That we pretty much know. Now, the store will have curtainless sort of display cases, Mm -hmm. you know, the ones that you can see at the supermarkets and the delis. Um, We know that that goes down to 30 degrees, but we have not been able to really put it into use using our banchan in the specific packaging that we're preparing. Mm -hmm. So that we will know basically when we open, because every day we'll be testing. Mm. Every day we'll be taking out a batch and testing. And, and, you know, I feel like as long as the customers never get to see the the food that may have spoiled, we're okay. It's Mm -hmm. our job to find (laughs) it first. And and that's how it's going to be because we're not going to be able to sort of uh, put food out there with an empty store and check every day and throw it out later. But we're pretty confident of our abilities to see, taste and smell every morning. Uh, because we are going to remove it. And because of the shelf life, every night we're going to have to remove everything in the mm. display cases uh, into the walk-in. And before we put it out, we're going to have to taste everything, at least a batch. So we're, we're, we have a strategy. Um, we just have to execute it every morning, seven days a week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: And is there any chance that you can give us a, a little sneak peek into the opening? Are there kind of a handful of dishes that you're most proud of or that you like best that will be available when the shop opens?
1: So we're opening in Long Island City. It has mm-hmm. its fair share of like, Asians, but mm-hmm. it's not predominant. It's not like Koreatown. It's not like Flushing. I know uh, we realize that there are people, most of them, who've never even tasted Korean food.
0: Mm-hmm. So it,
1: to them, it is still exotic. But everybody's heard of Korean barbecue. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we uh, have done is we made a little, like, take it home Korean barbecue set. Oh,
3: Where cool. you have,
1: you know, you just have to pan fry or grill the meat that's mm-hmm. been marinated. And then you have two or three banchans that goes well. Basically something acidic, something sweet, something that'll cut the fat of the meat. Uh, and a, a kid-friendly banchan that's not spicy. So mm-hmm. we'll have a little set of that and then... Um, can't forget the the sam uh, mm-hmm. samjang and the leaves uh, that will make you know your your meat dinner very healthy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we hope to educate uh, inform about Korean food, Korean culture, how to eat it mm-hmm. to our neighbors because that was that will be our core. But yeah. then also we have a little grocery section. Uh, um, You know, I love H-Mart because I do so much shopping there, (laughs) but H-Mart is sort of very limited to the mass-produced ingredients like sesame oil, soy Mm -hmm. sauce, but I was able to get a lot of uh, products straight from Korea that are handmade by grandmothers who've owned a sesame oil farm for three generations, soy sauce, fish sauce, a whole bunch of those, so I'm really uh sort of proud of being able to share this with not just locals but you know korean chefs or people who are interested in sort of taking korean food cooking to the next level i i really hope that they can take advantage of this uh situation where they can come in and taste everything uh before they buy yeah
3: yeah i'm really fascinated by um the idea of like sourcing things directly like from korea and kind of from a more quote-unquote kind of independent angle i guess um when did you start thinking of that as something that you wanted to do as part of the banchan shop
1: so i've been doing this with my restaurants for 12 years now yeah (laughs) but not as many ingredients because for a restaurant all i needed were were good changs. you know Mm -hmm. the 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 tenjang gochujang and the kanjang uh Ninety percent of my menu has one or more of those ingredients, mm-hmm. so it just changed the whole flavor dynamic of everything on my menu.
3: Yeah, um, and as we're getting a little bit into the weeds of Korean food, would you mind explaining uh, "chang" for our listeners, uh, just so that they have context for what yes. we're talking about?
1: Chang is like, I would say, how the French think or regard of the mother sauces. You know, every French cook, uh, they have to learn the five mother sauces before they can make any other sauce because the hundreds and thousands of sauces that French cuisine has, it all comes from those five mother sauces. Mm-hmm. And I consider Korean food the same, the way we regard our changs. Mm-hmm. Almost everything, when you go to a Korean restaurant, has one of those chungs in it. And the three main chungs are soy sauce, which is kanjang, and tenjang. Uh, which is uh, sort of like the Japanese call it miso, Koreans call it tenjag, but it's the soybean uh, that's been uh, fermented. And gochujang, which is unique to Korea, which is a spicy uh, fermented red pepper paste. Now, those three ingredients, you know, tough to, I can't think of any Korean ingredients, traditional Korean foods that don't have any of those Mm -hmm. dishes. Um, And if you ever decide to cook Korean food at home, uh, if you have three quality chunks at home, rather than the supermarket ones. Your food—you don't even have to be a good cook. Your food will just <laughs> taste just more delicious than you if you are cooking with uh, uh, supermarket ingredients.
3: And to go, I guess, a little further afield from our discussion, I wanted to ask about um, your sourcing these ingredients as well. Obviously, as you've mentioned, you've been doing this for a long time, but I'm wondering what that overall process is like for you to go out and look for these specific ingredients and tastes.
1: Yeah, there, there are two ways, mm-hmm. uh, depending on volume of wh- how much I want to bring in. The first thing is I, I like to taste things in Korea, and that's, mm-hmm. that's not work for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been doing that uh, since the beginning. Uh, the next step is if i want to bring this in whether to decide to use somebody in korea to get the fda approval uh Mm. and everything and then after they send it here we need to get fda approval uh to put the labels on Mm. or finding a company uh, an importer based in the u.s to actually do it for you Mm -hmm. um it's tricky in that usually the importer doesn't want to Deal with anything In a small scale So in that situation I have to sort of Bring it myself Um, And that's a lot Of paperwork That's a lot of um, It's just a lot of work And a lot of Korean Farmers don't want To deal with that Mm -hmm. Because if their Product's good They're going to sell Out everything anyway Yeah Uh, So my thing is Look you know You've never been to the U.S., but your product has. You know, <laughs> your product will will yes. make you know will make Americans sort of really fall in love with Korean food. And I need your ingredients. Um, some have, well, many have uh, relented with that sort of uh, argument. But yeah, you know, even the whole importing thing that's a new that's a new process. The, mm-hmm. the boom of Korean restaurants the past ten years have you know, started up these companies and importers that do something like that. So hopefully it becomes a lot easier. I know I worked at Japanese restaurants for a long time. And with Japanese ingredients, it's so much easier to get. And we're talking really good ingredients mm-hmm. because there are distributors in every big city. You just call them up and they'll bring it to you. With mm-hmm. Korean food, it's not like that yet. And hopefully we can get there. hmm you know, if we make the food distribution, the importing much easier, it's just a matter of time when every mm-hmm. all the restaurants become better
0: because
1: yeah. the food, it'll taste better. Mm-hmm. My job is to make your food taste better at home. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, and I wanted to circle back a little bit about one of the things you're saying about um, the little banchan shop, which is the idea that at least some of the people who are coming into shop there won't be necessarily familiar or that familiar with Korean cuisine. And so I was curious if you factored in how these Korean banchan would meld with or sort of complement main dishes that might not be Korean as well. For instance, like if you're not eating it with rice or with uh, some other Korean dish.
1: You know, I I do eat a lot of Korean food at home uh, as well as non-Korean food. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes when I'm eating steak, I don't want cream spinach. I'd rather have, (laughs) you know, Korean spinach mucin, you know. -hmm. Uh, And there's a reason for that because I think Korean food, we tend to sort of try to cut the fat Mm
0: -hmm. in your mouth.
1: Uh, Whereas I think a lot of uh, American food, you add to the fat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hence the mac and cheese, the cream spinach. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, people who have experienced Korean barbecue at a restaurant, they know that sort of fatty meat and sort of acidic or sour, um, refreshing banchan, uh, really work well together. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like uh, those people would be those people who've experienced that will be much more open to have on a steak dinner that they have, you know, Sunday, you know, supper, uh, prime rib to have Korean banchans on the side because mm-hmm. it works. It really works. And even for barbecues, you know, Korean potato salads, Korean. Uh, side dishes, they all work with, uh, I think, especially somebody who enjoys spicy. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, kimchi now goes with everything. That's right? true. <laughs> but it, it's like that with, I think, almost all the banchan's.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned that you're, one of the things that you'll be offering at the little banchan shop is the little kind of um, Korean barbecue kit. Is the plan to kind of develop more of those as well, or kind of still try to stick mainly to the banchan themselves?
1: We do have, uh, I think. Six different marinated meats that Mm -hmm. we have on the menu, Um, you know, ranging from chicken, pork, you know, short rib, uh, sirloin, all different cuts, um, as well as a lot of bunch of stews and soups. Mm -hmm. We don't want to sort of skip on anything that Koreans enjoy at home. So Mm -hmm. always open to suggestions. And I'm sure we'll have (laughs) Korean customers telling us we need to put this on the menu because... (laughs) <laughs> their kid or their husband it's their favorite dish uh and we'll we'll do it yeah that's part of being a neighborhood place i think we're, we're very open to suggestions because i've i've been living in this neighborhood for 9 years now and oh, wow, i feel yeah. like i have the grasp but i know a bunch of people who are very opinionated and i am just waiting for their opinions <laughs> <laughs>
3: um and so for a final question uh since we're talking about the little panchan shop do you have a personal favorite panchan dish
1: yes Yes. Oh, two, two.
3: Okay.
1: I think for most Koreans, they will they will agree with me, or it'll be in their top five. <laughs> the baby anchovies.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. The the crispy sweetness of it. That actually, it's better when it's cold in the fridge than when it's straight uh, out of the, the the you know fry pan. And the the dried squid, the kochjang mm-hmm. marinated dry squid. That you know those two you know Koreans call it. Uh, categorize it as a papdodok like like rice rice robber or rice thieves, because little of that and that one bowl of rice you have just disappears yeah. in less than a couple of minutes. So those two dishes always. Uh, I remember cooking at Danielle and having these really long hours mm-hmm. and tasting butter all day, you know, uh, just to come home at one in the morning and having a warm bowl of rice and mm-hmm. just one of those banchans was just enough to go back the next mm-hmm. day to danielle
3: <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well chef hooney thank you so so much for our time it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and i'm truly i can't wait for the opening of the little panchon shop and whatever projects you have next
1: thank you karen for having me thank you so much it's been a pleasure
2: So, Karen, I made the mistake of listening to this conversation on Empty Stomach, which was really (laughs) problematic. Uh, It was a wonderful conversation, and it just made me want to house a bunch of Korean food. Mm -hmm. But before we get to the actual meat uh, proper, I'll I'll stop with the puns eventually. I got to ask, do you do a lot of home cooking yourself? Do you like to cook?
3: I like to cook, but I definitely don't do as much cooking as I should. Um, But I do do a little. My partner definitely cooks a lot more than I do. Uh, Do you do a lot of home cooking?
2: Yeah, I'm actually the kind of cook in our house. It's been a pandemic project uh, mm-hmm. for my wife to like learn to cook and cook more. And she's discovered that she enjoys it. Um, oh, that's you know, great. We, we've been together for 17 years though. And early on, like I did all the cooking because it, it wasn't that she was bad at it. She's actually always been good at it. She just doesn't like doing it. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, I like doing it. So why don't I do it? You yeah. know, and so I, I really like it. And I like it. It's like, um unlike most of the kind of creative work that you and I do, you know, it's done in a very short period of time and you know whether it was good or not, you know, it's, yeah. it's Im- and it's immediately useful. And there's something about that that I find uh, really fulfilling. For sure. I loved this thing he said about developing the meal kits as a matter of survival. I mean, I don't love that COVID hit the restaurant industry so hard Yeah, and you had to pivot to meal kits. That's not what I mean. But I just mean how honest he was about it and that sometimes when the chips are down... You just have to find a different way to do what you do. And and that is itself an act of creativity. And it seems like he just really embraced that challenge.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And as I mentioned in our conversation, the meal kits were a huge part of my pandemic experience because my partner and I would order them pretty often and really, really enjoyed them. Um, The kind of nice thing was that the stuff that he would put on the menu for those would remind us of dishes that we wanted to try cooking ourselves. And then we would do that, which was another like fun kind of pandemic activity. But it is absolutely true that sometimes you encounter just situations or contexts in your working life where you can't do the things that you want to in the way that you want to. And you just have to figure out a way to kind of repurpose what you're doing or do something different.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I also loved that in talking about the meal kits, he mentioned that they started changing them up because he and his wife were also eating the mm-hmm. meal kits and they would just get bored. You know, he's experiencing his work the mm-hmm. way his customers do, which I feel like cooking is a field in which it's very easy to do that. And other creative fields, it's it's hard So, like, mm-hmm. is there a way as a writer to experience your writing the way the reader does? And And if so, how do we do it?
3: I think the simplest way to kind of go about it is to basically just reread your own work, which I hope that we all do like before putting it out there in the world. Even though it's not necessarily like a new journey, like you know what you wrote, you know what's in there. It helps to put you in a slightly different mindset. Maybe it helps to say like it puts you in a more editorial mindset than a writerly mindset. Mm. Um and it's oftentimes in rereading that I'll find like awkward sentence structures or be like, Oh, this sounds so pretentious. I have to change this. Um that said, I think The main kind of thing is like being able to put yourself at a distance from what you've created, which is often the hardest part of it. Like you already have an opinion of it even before you'd like taste the meal that you made or reread the thing that you wrote. So it's mostly about being able to sort of take a step back.
2: Yeah, totally. I I would say that some things that I find useful for that are reading it out loud Mm. because you just process it in a different way. And I've definitely found a lot of awkward sentences or things I wanted to rewrite through reading it out loud to myself. Uh, Recently, I was giving a talk and the guy introducing me read part of the book out loud. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I'd ever heard anyone else read my book out loud. And I was like, oh, this is really weird. I was like, hey, that sentence sounded pretty good. Oh, wait, I wrote that. (laughs) Uh, and, And another one, which is a classic that they teach you in MFA programs and stuff, is to change it into a really ugly font. Oh, fun. Like if you, you like redo it in Comic Sans 16 or something and then see <laughs> see what you like and don't like about your draft. Um, I want to flag that the logistical realities of his uh, new venture of Little Banchan sound truly, truly mind boggling. Like sometimes I'm not sure how I'm going to get my dog walked by the end of the day. And meanwhile, he's making 60 dishes, all of which have different shelf lives.
3: I know, like it, it almost like reminds me we talk about video games so much on this show, but it reminds me of like the little management video games that you have yeah. to play like within bigger games sometimes where yeah. you're like you have to keep track of so many different things and it's so hard, but it, it's so fun, but only in a game environment. Like right. I feel like if I had to do it in real life, I'd just go crazy. But that said, I guess that is the, the fact that he's able to do it so well is one of the reasons why he's one of the best in the biz.
2: Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And it really seems like a core part of his process. And I have to say, this is the part that I found in its way really inspiring in mm-hmm. your interview is how key trial and error is to yeah. what he does. And maybe I find that inspiring because I really suck at it, at mm-hmm. embracing the spirit of trial and error. But you can't be a chef unless you love trial and error, it seems to me. Uh, <laughs> I want to know how things are going to work before I embark on doing it yes. early on. you know. How are you with this?
3: honestly pretty bad and I feel like it's true of a pretty big subset of us like creative types quote-unquote where I'm of the mindset where if I think I'm going to fail at something I will hate it automatically and not want to do it like even if it's something that I've just started and rationally there's just no reason why I would be good at it as soon as I like produce something that's bad I'm like I hate this I'm never doing this again that said I'm trying to get better at it slash I find it a lot easier to kind of go through that trial and error process when I'm not working by myself. Like having a team or at least having a partner makes the idea of tackling something that seems really ripe for error a lot less daunting or annoying because at least you're in it together and it's not just you being like, oh, I suck at this.
2: Yes. Collaboration is actually really helpful for encouraging that kind of spirit. It's so hard to do on your own. You know, I, um, my daughter really, if she's not immediately you know has an immediate kind of aptitude for something she gets really angry about it and doesn't want to keep going and so it's hard for her to practice and I was the same when I was a kid absolutely like I was pretty good at a lot of things and so once I hit the wall that you had to work hard to be better than pretty good (laughs) at it I'd be like fuck this I'm not doing this anymore Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting because you know As her dad, I'm trying to impart this kind of life lesson of like, you're not bad at it. You're just new at it. And then you practice and you get better at it and blah, blah, blah.
3: You should take her to the little banchan shop and explain
2: all these. Be like,
3: you see these like, you know how much trial and error this took. They all have different shelf lives. He has so much that he has to think about.
2: I know. But what I realize whenever I'm doing those monologues, it's like I'm talking to myself. It's really myself I'm talking to. It's it, whether it's, sometimes it's the younger version of me, sometimes yeah. it's actually old ass 43 year old me. I'm mm-hmm. just really talking to myself there. <laughs> um, I thought it was so interesting that his store is opening up in Long Island City and not Flushing or Koreatown. You know, he said right there, you know, he knows a lot of his customers are going to be unfamiliar with the food and its flavors, but that's part of his creative process is trying to figure out a way to bridge that unfamiliarity and kind of bring them in and get them interested in this stuff.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of true of all creative endeavors. After a certain point, if you're working on something that isn't known or familiar to literally everyone, which I think is almost everything that you could hope to do, then you're going to have to figure out how to sort of open it up Mm -hmm. to a broader audience at some point. And I also feel like he has sort of been doing this like his whole career, like, again, as the first Michelin starred chef for Korean cuisine, like he has always, at least it seems to me, been conscious of like how to bring Korean cuisine like into a more mainstream eye or to people who aren't necessarily that familiar with it. I think one of the things that we talk about in um, talking about the little banchan shop is like banchan is not an idea that's universal to all cuisines. Like it's not really necessarily something that you think about, like having a a bunch of refrigerated sides for a meal is not the kind of typical like Western meal, but it's so versatile. There's so many different kinds of it. Like shutting yourself off from that is ultimately like you're shutting yourself off from so many different experiences.
2: Right. I loved that whole point that it's like, you know you can just have a bowl of hot rice and like 3 of these things yeah. and you've got a meal and that's that's the point you know we're all yep. busy and sometimes at the end of the day you want to be able to whip up a home cooked meal in 20 minutes well here's actually a way you can do it
3: Mm-hmm, absolutely. I don't have panchan as much as I should, but I love it. Like we have too, we have like a little bit of kimchi in the fridge. Like we have a few, I always have a few panchan in the fridge because like having a little bit of rice and like this also is sort of about like the popularity of microwave rice, especially in Korea. Like you can just buy that. You don't even have to have a rice cooker. Just throw one of the little bowls into a microwave, get one of these refrigerated size and then you're set.
2: That's amazing. I've never done microwave rice. I just make it in a pot on the stove.
3: Really? Stove rice? Stove yeah.
2: rice. I am really, I'm like a stove rice master. I've got to admit, because wow. I just don't have enough space to have a separate rice cooker yeah. on top of the you rice. Know, l- I just love having a here. rice cooker. I want to have a rice cooker. Let me make it very clear. Like, uh, <laughs> it, until if I, I could, I would have one. If I could, I would.
3: Yeah. We typically use the rice cooker that we have, but again, like if you don't have the space for it or if you're in a pinch and you just want to eat rice right now and not wait an hour for it, microwave rice is great.
2: Good to know. And then you can get some panchan and uh, put them in.
3: Yeah. Again, you should go because you're in New York and you can go.
2: I absolutely will go. I like his food. I love Korean food. I absolutely nice. will go. Don't worry. Good. Okay. Well, that's our show for this week. If you like what we do, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. That way you will never miss an episode of Working or its sister program, Working Over Time. And once again... For the last time this week, I am going to give you this Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get all sorts of goodies, bonus segments on shows like this one, bonus full episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood, and Slow Burn, full access behind the paywall, a delightful and very charming weekly newsletter in your inbox. It's really just a, it's like a bonjon set of goodies. <laughs> so sign up today at slate.com slash working plus.
3: And thank you so much to our guest Huni Kim and to our deliciously talented producer Cameron Druids. Join us next week for June's conversation with writing partners, Rob Walker and Josh Glenn. And until then, get back to work.
2: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time.
0: Visit a new state of mind.